This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cut. I'm Krista Tippett. You are listening to my unedited conversation with Bishop Vashti McKenzie of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. I spoke with her using a broadcast-quality telephone connection on September 22, 2008. I was in the studio of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota, and she was in a private recording studio in Nashville, Tennessee. This interview was included in our program, African-American Woman Leader, and originally podcast in October 2008. Download the MP3 of the produced show at speakingoffaith.org. No, I doubted that you'd get here today. That's right. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, because I called you yesterday because I was that concert is tonight. Oh, I saw that. I'm not going to make it. It's at the Guthrie, isn't it? It's probably pretty expensive, too. At the Guthrie. Yeah, exactly. Rub it in, Mitch. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, who liked... uh... (laughs) No one who wants to spend their off hours with me. Thank you. Thank you. I know you're paid yes, to be here with me, so. Has it when <coughs> taking over everything. I didn't, I just saw you, I saw that you called. So we need we need to we need to do this in an hour. Is that right? Um, Okay, but okay, I'm gonna try to. I know I know she's got busy schedule, but we have 90 minutes. Ten. It's gonna be an hour and a half. Where are where are they? I said said nine to ten thirty. That's why I said they really have a whole lot to talk about. You have a lot to say, or you will. (laughs) I guess I will. Right. And here's your uh, headphone volume right here. Okay. And um, we'll get a level on you here. Just a second. Let's see. We need that up just a little bit more. All right. Mm-hmm. Bishop McKenzie? Yes. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Hi, Krista. How are you? Hello. I'm so glad I managed to get you at the other end of the microphone. <laughs> it's been a challenge, I know. <laughs> it's been a challenge. But I've uh, It's been a busy year. I know it has. I'm just grateful that you're here today. Um I um I've known for years that I wanted to interview you. I've had you on my list and this real I thought this year was the moment. So Oh, okay. And Krista. Mm-hmm. Uh, Engineer Dave here. Before we get Hi, too far into it, let's let's get a level on everybody here. Okay. Bishop, um, if you would uh, talk to me. Sure. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten on Monday. <laughs> Mitch, look all right. Looks great, Dave. Thank you. I okay. think I'm. I was hearing. Am I hearing a little bit of an echo? No. It's fine. Well, tiny. I can live with it. I think it's only when I move up too close to the microphone. No, I'm not hearing anything now. Okay. Um, Bishop McKenzie, do you have any questions of me before we start? 
Uh, sure. Um, you know, just tell me a little bit about your broadcast on okay. the audience. Uh, okay. And you're on, you know. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we. This is a, you know, I am hearing a little bit of an echo. I wonder if, um, Mitch, do you think that might be headphones at the other end? Um, I wonder, can Dave hear Would me? Would you like me to turn them down? Yes, just a little bit if you could. You've done this okay, before. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's better. Yeah. Okay. So this program, uh, uh, speaking of faith, it's a relatively new uh, media enterprise. We've been on public radio for five years. We're on over 200 stations. We just want a Peabody. So the program's grown really rapidly, but it's a quite a new thing for public radio to have a program uh, devoted to religion. And okay. um, we have a very diverse audience. Um, it's a you know it's and also in we're we have a lot of podcasters. I mean, in these days, anything you do is global <laughs> automatically mm-hmm. through the internet. So we have listeners all over the world. And um, okay, what I like to say is that this is not a program about religion, but about any subject of life. We can take on any subject of life, of public life or human life, but then throw a different set of questions and a different set of insights at it. Mm-hmm. And um, and you have to give me a minute to, to yeah. cough here. <laughs> um, and, you know, this is uh, allergy season. Yes. You know, you stepped outside of the house and yeah. I went like, whoa, yeah. whatever is decomposing okay. or blooming, it got me today. Well, so, you can cough me. as much as you want. Um, <coughs> the gr- a great luxury of this is we're not a live program. We get to have a mm-hmm. real conversation. And um, you can stop and cough whenever you feel like it's not a problem. Okay. We can just okay, edit great. it out. So um, <coughs> I'm just clearing. The okay, pipes, no, do say. that. Yeah. <coughs> um, mm-hmm. The re- I wanted to talk to you. I've I've been longing to talk to you this year because um, I feel like you embody and bring together in your person. Um, you know, you you are a woman. You are African American. You are a leader. And in our culture this year, in the context of the presidential election, some of those qualities have been sort of pitted at odds, pitted against each other in strange ways. And, you know, you've brought them together in your life. And I I do want to, a little bit later on, talk about um, some of the issues that have come up or or questions maybe that we haven't really faced that have been, but have have been opened through... um, the candidacy of Barack Obama, the candidacy of Hillary Clinton, um, the Jeremiah Wright controversy. Um, but I don't want to start there. I really just want to start with, with Thank an you. understanding. <laughs> I want, that's really, I want that not to be the point, but we'll get there. So I want to learn about you um, and your life and your theology and your, your um, philosophy of leadership, which is pretty developed. So that's where we'll start. Is that all right? Okay, that's fine. Okay, that's good. so... Um, and I do, you know, I interview, I interview theologians, I interview physicists, I interview parents, but I always start with this question. I'd, I'd like to hear something about the religious background of your childhood and how it formed you and what it meant to you. Well, I, I believe, uh, and I have said on a number of occasions that I grew up as a church child, not that my parents were pastors or, you know, deacons or, or that. I, I just grew up in, in the church. Uh, meaning that at an early age, I was in Sunday school. I was going to worship on a regular basis. Uh, the bus system, you know, I grew up in, in, in the heart of Baltimore City. Right. 
and the you know the public bus system was like you know ten cents to the church and ten cents back, okay. uh, and uh, it was easy for me after school, which was of course in those days was right down the street, uh, to come home and you have working parents, and so for me I'm on the bus to the church. I started singing in the choir before I could read. Uh, I would go to choir rehearsal on Thursdays and memorize the songs and kind of insisted on being in the choir on Sunday since I knew the songs and I would stand there and hold the uh, hymn book or hold the the folder where the music was and uh, people say, oh, wow, she can read. No, I just went to memorize the songs because <laughs> I wanted to sing in the choir. Uh, and so I, I, I you know, grew up in the church that way and went through the youth fellowship um, we used to have sock hops in the guild hall uh, in, in growing up. So, uh, you know, just, just surrounded by, you know, church activities growing up. And uh, it had a great impact upon me. Mm-hmm. Uh, being able to sit in the sanctuary, there was always a sense. There was always a presence for me. Uh, at that age, of course, I could not identify it. I, I could not um, put my hand on it, but I I knew that there was a presence. And when I was in the sanctuary, I could feel the presence. Of course, now at an older age, looking back, I could feel the presence of the Lord. And what, at that young juncture, mm-hmm. you know, you're talking about you're talking about back in the uh, early '60s, late '50s. I had many questions. I wanted to know how come. Uh, the girls couldn't do this when the guys right. could do this. You know, I had an older brother. Was and, it an AME church uh, that your family attended? In the Episcopal Church. I, oh, okay. I, mm-hmm. My childhood was in the Episcopal okay. Church. And, um, you know, my brother served on the altar and did all these other kinds of things. And I wanted to do that, too. And I couldn't mm-hmm. understand why I could not uh, do that. Uh, but uh, that was not the question that I asked at that time. My family's history is in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Okay. My grandfather was a member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and so was my uh, grandfather, uh, my great-grandfather. In fact, my great-grandfather was a trustee for 15 years, led the senior choir for 15 years, uh, was Sunday school superintendent of the Hagerstown District at that time Mm -hmm. in the Baltimore, uh, in the state of Maryland, Uh, and so was a great supporter, uh, and many of my family members were uh, members of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. We got kind of, we took a, a, a right turn uh, when my mother was one of five girls. Right. Uh, she was the second oldest. And after her came a set of twins. So my grandmother's hands were kind of full mm, yeah. <laughs> with with young children and young babies. And so uh, my grandmother asked my mother's godmother to take her to church. And my mother's godmother was a member of the Episcopal Church. And so that's how we got there. Uh, And then when I became grown and an adult, I chose the African Methodist Episcopal Church because it was closer uh, to my belief system. I see. Now, in terms of what people, the passions and the careers of people in your family, there was a, you were surrounded by journalists, right? And people, yes. uh, political and cultural issues. It, it sounds like more than... Uh, more than religion, perhaps religion was always in the mix. And but it, I mean, it sounds to me just from reading you that you didn't really imagine growing up that you would end up as a preacher or much less um, as a bishop. Is that right? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, 
if you had asked me 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, <laughs> if you had asked me that question, I would say, no, absolutely not. I did not intend originally to have a career in journalism. Uh, I grew up with it. It was all around me. Uh, of course, um, parents and other family members were very encouraging, but I said, well, everybody else is doing this. I want to do something different. But lo and behold, guess what? Here I am. Uh, I started writing professionally at 16. I had my own column uh, in uh, the family newspaper and uh, took a stint at the Arizona Republic uh, after I got married and uh, just kind of stayed close to journalism until I ended up in uh, broadcasting Mm -hmm. in radio. I was on air for, what, 10, 10, 12 years. Uh, on radio and went into broadcast management and my sites really I was I was on my way uh, from you know on-air personality to program director to operations manager to general manager uh, and I was looking to own a slew of radio stations at this time of life (laughs) at this time of my life and you there's a you know there's a sentence in one of your books but you don't really elaborate on it you say i preached my trial sermon at bethel ame church in baltimore my friends and family sat in the congregation thinking i had lost my mind at any moment <laughs> i would snap out of it is this because they had really never pictured you in that role either what well, they caught what i was where i was going mm-hmm. uh, why would you leave a career where you're successful in broadcast management, downsize your career, a very wonderful salary, (laughs) a very wonderful rating, uh, and, uh, you know, back up and go to seminary. Yeah. You How have old to were prepare you? for this. How old were you when you went to seminary? This had to be... Now, you, now you're asking very deep, complicated <laughs> questions. Well, you don't have uh, to answer anything you don't want to. <laughs> uh, this had to be somewhere in uh, the, the late 20s, early 30s. Okay. You know, when you're making these career decisions, you know. Uh, and, you know, like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? But I was in, I was in gospel radio. I was an on-air gospel announcer at a 24-hour gospel radio station. Uh, and the, uh, I believe that every believer has a call in their life. That wherever you, whatever you do, your faith response is to do something for the Lord. So, uh, if you're gonna, if your call is to usher, your usher should be your ushering should be your ministry. If you're singing in the choir, you you're the psalmist ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you work in other kinds of ministry, that every believer has a responsibility uh, to be a part of a ministry. And so, I thought at the time uh, when I was on air, I said, "This is the ministry that God has called me to. How wonderfully perfect! I would do it even if you wouldn't." pay me. I would do it for free. And I thought I was just the most blessed person in the world to do something that I enjoyed, I loved doing, and people actually paid me for it. You know? yeah. uh, and uh, they must have been deluded, but they did. Uh, and so my family felt that I was just, you know, I was going to you know, follow this course and go, you know, straight right out of broadcasting to ownership because it's what I talked about. Uh, that's, you know, that was that's a what part your family of my had done as well. Your family had a great history in that. Sure. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of fit. It was kind of natural. And then all of a sudden, you know, as they say, you know, there's a stop there. And, um, you know, are you really sure? You know, they they thought maybe I had overdosed on gospel music. I had to spend (laughs) uh, at it, you know, seven, no, six days a week. 
um, you know, on air for four or five hours, and then, um, of course, programming and working and, and doing everything. So uh, they thought that any moment now I would come to my senses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was not it. That The call for me was beyond what I was doing as a vocation. Um, the call was for me to come into ministry, uh, that this was not the end. This was just the beginning. It was a stop along the way. Okay. And you have also written um, that you've, and I, I, I think I, I wrote this sentence down because the, the way you phrased it, I think, is really important. That you learned how to endure when caught in the crossfire of racism and sexism, both of those things. And um, and I just wonder if you think, from your earliest days, how you experienced that crossfire between sexism and racism. <laughs> well, uh, I have been uh, female and African-American all my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and someone asked me a question the other day. Was Has there ever been a time where you have felt, have uh, have been in a place where there was, there was there an absence of racism and absences of sexism? And I, I said, no, I don't. I don't remember a time where you didn't have to face that issue. I have... Um, when when I look back over the places where I've been in life, I have not been in traditionally um, places, roles, functionalities that were traditionally female, except for I think one one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but being being doing morning drive, morning drive was not <laughs> so uh, even at then. that time in the sixties uh-huh. a, a traditional place for a woman to be. Okay. During afternoon drive was not a place for a woman. Uh, being a program director in a major market, Washington D.C. I mean, for you know, for a radio and we got good ratings, yay! Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was not a traditional role for women. And so, uh, being a general manager radio station at the time was not a traditional role for a woman. So. Uh, to be able to face the jokes, um, you know, you'd come into work and you're going off shift and you're program director now. So uh, now you are you're going off shift and uh, you're going to handle the administrative responsibilities and duties. And uh, the next person coming behind you, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I give a little reminder. I said, don't forget to leave the studio the way you found it. So the next person who comes behind you, uh, you know, will be able to, you know, step into the seat and uh, get their music going and, and go right on. Mm. Uh, and so uh, the uh uh, the young man said to me, uh, but uh, uh, you can't tell me what to do because a man, a woman is not supposed to tell a man what to do. And I said, mm-hmm. excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm your program director. I signed your checks, you know. Uh, pardon me. I, and, 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 and he says, well, the Bible says mm-hmm. uh, that uh, a, a, a wife is supposed to submit herself uh, to her husband. Right. And I said, am I married to you? <laughs> Uh, and he says, no, then make sure the studio looks like this when you go off shift. Okay. <laughs> you know? And it's those kinds of things that you you face on a daily basis. You, you're sitting in a you're sitting in a staff meeting and you come up with a great idea for a promotion. And all the guys in the room laugh and they think it's a really big joke. Oh, no, this will never work. This will never work. And then about a month later. Um, you know, one of the guys is sitting in the room and say, hey, why don't we do this? This would be a great idea for promotion. And you go like, wait a minute, didn't I suggest that three <laughs> weeks ago? 
no, 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 this is different, this is different, this is different, this is different. Uh, you know, those, kind, those kinds of things. And uh, when you're talking about being caught in the, in the crosshairs of, of racism and sexism, uh, it, it becomes very disappointing when you believe that you're holding hands with your brothers who are of African descent, who you believe that together we're going to help open the doors for the generation that are coming behind us. Mm. And together we're going to help our communities become colorblind. And together we're going to work uh, to be sure uh, that people don't look at our color first, uh, but they look at our skills, our qualifications, our education, our background, uh, that we can find purchase, not because of our color or our uh, of our color, we're going to find our place because our gifts are going to make room for us. And then all of a sudden, the hand that you're holding turns around and closes the door in your face because you're a woman. Mm. See? Yeah. And so that what it means is being in the crosshairs. It's sort of like a double whammy. <laughs> you know, you get, bam, mm. you get hit because of your color. And then you get hit again because of your gender. Now, you were, is this right, you were... In sixth grade, when integration arrived in Baltimore, yes. Um, how did that imprint your sense of what it meant to be African American culturally? I mean, did that make you more aware of your race than you had been before? Yes, uh, I, I believe that um, you know, growing up in Baltimore, we were in uh, a very uh, wonderful community where we knew everybody in the neighborhood, and it was a, a wonderful, affirming place. Uh, in school, your school teachers were likely to be the same persons who were your Sunday school teachers. Uh, and there was a, uh, you know, it's like a unit between the church, the school, and the community. It was a wonderful incubator, mm-hmm. you know, just mm-hmm. a wonderful incubator. Then all of a sudden, integration comes. And <clears throat> excuse me. That's okay. Do you, do you have some water there? Do you have a cup mm-hmm. of water? Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. way to say stop date mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all digital now it's great <laughs> oh i'll do di- okay. oh yeah we can <laughs> this is no problem <laughs> work miracles everywhere <laughs> yeah, exactly well then uh all of a sudden uh you know integration comes and uh we are bussed across town to a new school where instead of being a part of a majority you are a part of a minority mm-hmm. uh there may be one, you may be the only person who is of African descent in your class. There may be two or three of you. I don't remember. I, I believe that there were only about seven to ten kids in this humongous um, you know, elementary school where, where I finished the sixth grade. And, of course, they couldn't get my name right. I was Vashti, and I kept saying, no, I am Vashti, and, or you're Washti, and no, and I said, you know, and, and the hmm. kids in the class, well, why didn't your mother name you Mary or Ann like the rest of us? <laughs> because my name is not Mary or Ann like the rest of you. Uh, it is Vashti. Well, we have to find a name. We have to call you something. We just can't call you your name. And then all of a sudden, you become an oddity, and there was really a new experience. Uh, and so... You, you find yourself in a, in, a, in a position where you have to teach uh, people about your culture and your heritage because they didn't know. That's not an easy thing understand. to do when you're in sixth or seventh or eighth grade, when you're wrestling with your identity at such a fundamental level as well. 
Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, you find that you have to prove yourself every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, before then, you were just you. Here you are. You're in class um, with teachers that you have known and grown up, and they're part of your family's social circle, your church circle, and uh, who you know looked at you and expected you to do great things. Uh, then you're thrust into an environment where people don't expect you to do great things. Mm-hmm. In fact, they expect you to fail. They look for you to fail. Uh, they look for you to be in the lowest reading group. They look for you to do the worst in math. And so all of a sudden, the light clicks on and says, oh, well, now wait a minute here now. <laughs> We're not used to be on the bottom of anything. We're used to being on the top. Uh, and so you find yourself, we're going to have to, you know, step up here. We're going to have to, uh, uh, you know, upgrade our process because we're not used to being uh, on the bottom. And so you find you have to prove different. Hmm. You know, when people walk in with low expectations and attitudes like, like, we really don't expect you to. Uh, to you know, to get out of this class, uh, and you and you in, in, inside you says, oh well, you got another thing coming. Not only am I going to get out of this class, but I'm going to get out of this class at the top. <laughs> and uh, you did, and, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and, and everything. Uh, the school was wonderful because it had a whole lot of other things that we didn't have. Uh, you know, I was at. Uh, Robert Brown Elliott, school number 104, which at the top of the school, in stone, it said colored school number nine. Mm -hmm. Uh, All we had was Mm -hmm. a playground and a cafeteria. Now, we were bused across town, which means I got on a bus at 6 a.m. to be in school by 8.30, and the kids that I had to go to compete with stayed in bed until 7. See, so I mean, like the day started earlier, but at this new school, there was a gymnasium. We never had a gymnasium before. They had a band, uh, you know, the whole nine yards, uh, you know, uh, track and field outside, out back. I mean, it was like, wow. You know, they had all these kinds of things that we didn't have in our elementary school, um, which was great. Which was wonderful, you know, but I was already taking piano lessons. And so when I got to that school, they said, well, we already have a student playing piano. You have to learn another instrument. I said, okay, fine. You take the test. It says, you know, uh, you uh, qualify for one, two, and three. I said, I'll take the flute. I'll do that one. Oh, well, we want you to do the piccolo. Okay, fine. We'll do that one. (laughs) Would you like to learn the oboe? Okay, fine. We'll do that, you know. Uh, And you find that in every place that you're put, you have to prove your existence. Uh, that you have a right to be there. And that's what African-Americans and that's what women do every day in a leadership position. Hmm. You have to prove that you have a right to be there. You know, I just want to repeat something you said. It's really simple, but it's really stunning that when you, it was through the experience of integration that you first experienced yourself as a minority, as being in a minority. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's really startling. As a as as an African American and as a woman, mm-hmm. uh, I grew up in a family where you know gender didn't matter. Uh, for you did what your gift, um, what your gift qualified you for. Uh, the fact that you have that gift, that God gave you that gift, was permission for you to use it and to exercise it. So there were no, there were no boundaries. There were no borders. There was no one saying. 
that you can't do that, mm-hmm. uh, which was just a wonderful, just a wonderful family uh, to grow up in. Uh, and then you step out of the cocoon of that family, the cocoon of your neighborhood, uh, out into the big wide world. And they say, well, I don't know. We'll decide what you can do. Mm. And when we've made up our mind about you, we may give you permission to step out of the corner that we have designated for you. Hmm. Now, um, one of your, you have many firsts in your CV, and one of them was that you were the first woman pastor, leader of the historic Payne Memorial AME Church in Baltimore. And while you were there, you, you grew the number of worshipers, you, you, um, you know, all those, all those numbers that that we might look at in our commerce-oriented society and say this is progress. But you also created nonprofits. The church became a hub that was working on issues like health care and welfare to work. Um, and I, I want to ask you how that reflects your understanding of the gospel and, um, and of the place of the church in, in human life and in public life as well as, uh, as individual life. How's that a reflection of your theology? Sure. Uh, Yes, it is. And it is a reflection of the theology of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, which is why I came home to the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, The the mission, Feed the Hungry, uh, this is the mission of the AME Church, Feed the Hungry, Clothe the Naked, Cheer the Fallen, Encourage Economic Thrift, um, uh, Visit and Tend to Those Who Are Mentally uh, uh, enabled, unabled, and so forth. I mean, there are nine categories that cover your social, your intellectual, your economic, your physical uh, presence and being mm. in the church. Nine and categories in church teaching, or how does that, where does that In appear? the mission, okay. in the mission. Right. When you look at the mission and purpose of the AME church, there are nine things. Okay. You know, seek out and save the lost, visit the sick, mm. uh, cheer the fallen, Encourage thrift, economic thrift, uh, you know, housing, visit those who are in prison. Uh, and these are, you know, these are biblically based. These yes. are not things that were just grabbed out of the air. When you go to Matthew, the 25th chapter, uh, when Jesus says, uh, you know, um, when the people respond, when did we see you hungry? Yeah. When did we see you in prison? Uh, and the Lord's response is, as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. So these things are not just grabbed out of the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for me, the church ought to be a center of the community. And being in the community, uh, then our responsibility are not only to those who are members of your church, our responsibility is also to those who live in the shadow of, I call it the shadow of your citadel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is a neighborhood, there is a community of needs and beings. And so the church ought to respond to that. And being at pain, and you must understand every church I pastored, I was the first woman. Okay. <laughs> it's not just pain. All right. Every, every church along the way. Okay. Um, what, you know, I was the first woman uh, to pastor that congregation. I'm excited to say that I was not the last woman uh, to, pa- to yeah. pastor, uh, you know, as, as you go along. Uh, but being at in Payne Memorial in that northwest Baltimore area, um, that congregation, uh, for the most part, people drove in from other neighborhoods to attend that hmm. congregation. They used to live around there, uh, but they have moved. Uh, but they, for the most part, drove in. 
Uh, and so that's your drive-in congregation. But around that neighborhood, there was violence, there was crime, uh, there was drug activity, there was prostitution. Uh, there were people who were hungry, people who were homeless on the street. So what are we supposed to do? Drive in, have our wonderful service and go home <laughs> okay. and not do anything uh, to enhance uh, the life of those who live around your congregation. And if they live around uh, live around the church, then how come they're not members of the church? If there's power in the church, uh, and I believe there is, if the power of God uh, can transform my life, can transform the people who drive in, then that same power can transform the people in the neighborhood. Hmm. Uh, and so then our job is is to be sure that the power that is on the inside uh, becomes the power that reaches the people on the outside. So that means you do more than have a, um, a, a food pantry where once a week people who are hungry uh, can come uh, with a sack and, and we give you non-perishable food items. Uh, you have to go beyond that. You know, it's like, I saw you last week. Now, what are you going to do this week to be sure you're not in my line next week? Right. What right. can we do to help you and empower you so that you're not back in this line next week? And so that was your week. welfare to work programming that you started. Well, that's it's a natural lead-in. Mm -hmm. uh, we began the outreach center. The, the outreach center, uh, you know, started with, of course, the food pantry and the clothes pantry, the, the traditional things that, that happened. And then we moved to helping people with their shut-off and cut-off notices. And then we became like the referral agency. Uh, I need help, okay? Let's see how we can connect you to the appropriate agency or organization in the community, in the city, uh, that can help you with that need. Because some people just can't navigate all the red tape that they face when they, uh, when they need help, or they don't know where to go to help, uh, where to go to find help. Uh, and so the natural progression after, uh, after doing all of those services, I mean, we were, we were providing services for 5,000 families on a yearly basis. Okay. Uh, and then it kind of jumped up to about 10,000 families uh, because of the policies of the city. The city was uh, closing down housing, moving Section 8 people uh, out to the suburbs. They were revamping neighborhoods, which impacted, you know, our services. So you, the city's making changes in policies and decisions and expects us to pick up the pieces uh, without consulting us. I don't think that's fair, but <laughs> that's okay. neither here nor there. But the, the natural progression was to move into a place where uh, we trained persons for jobs and, you know, held their hands while they navigated, uh, you know, coming out of tennis shoes and jeans, and uh, we had a professional clothes closet. We did soft, sell, uh, soft skills, uh, how to get your resume out, how to do an interview, how to do all those kind of things, and then go through the training program. But we did a whole lot of things that the contract uh, with the state uh, didn't require. Uh, we did uh, GED preparation, adult basic education. Mm -hmm. uh, we helped, uh, you know, if you, can't, if you can't read what the job requires, then you're not going to get the job. Right. If you have a problem with math, uh, it's going to be very, very hard for us to train you uh, to be a nurse's assistant because you're going to need the math to be able to read the thermometers and all the machines and all this other kind of stuff. So we did all of the prep work. It really that helped wasn't connecting the dots and helping people. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got the same issue. Helping people connect the dots. Um, these sure. Very practical dots. 
And it's called Demonstrating the Love of God okay. in Tangible and Practical Ways. Okay. And it, uh, you became a bishop out... Uh, that that was your next move from Payne Memorial, right? You, That's correct. You, okay, mm-hmm. and so now in in the in the American Methodist Episcopal African Methodist Episcopal Church, as in many Protestant churches, um, the uh, you you feel a calling to run for you you run for bishop. It's kind of a political process. Um, it's not an appointment from on high. Um, <laughs> so tell me, did you start to feel that calling to, um, to a broader leadership in that, in those experiences you're describing? Is that something you can yes. trace? Yeah. Yeah. I believe the, the, uh, the call, I believe that there is a call to the Episcopacy. I, I believe it's more than a decision. You just don't wake up in the morning and say, well, you know, I've done this long enough. It's yeah. time for me to go do something else or... Um, you know, I'm ready for the next level of service. Uh, I, I believe that it's a call. It just says you're, it's, there's a call to preach and there's a call to pastor. Uh, there's a call to teach. I believe there's a call to Episcopal service uh, because the road to, uh, to being elected is not an easy one. It's not an easy one for your family. And it's not an easy one for you. It is a political process. You have to campaign. Uh, Every four years, the AME Church holds a general conference. There are delegates who come from all over the world, from, uh, of course, the United States, the Caribbean, England, Europe, Africa, Canada. Uh, They come from all over the world, and they will elect Episcopal leaders. And so you have to present yourself to these delegates because they're going to vote for you. Uh, And it means you're going to have to travel. You're going to have to go to... Uh, you're going to have to hit the campaign trail. <laughs> yeah, you got to hit the campaign trail. And that's exactly what you do. And there, of course, we got we have campaign workers. You got volunteers. You mm-hmm. got T-shirts. You got banners. Videos. I, mean, you know, I heard you had a great video that greeted people at the convention or a video about oh, yeah. your work, Yeah, about your life mm-hmm. and ministry. Mm-hmm. The, the whole thing is, how do I get the message to people beyond the political barriers. It's the same thing that the candidates are doing now. How do I get my message to the delegates, to the people who are voting? Uh, Because you have to understand in in any political process, there are people who agree with you and there are people who disagree with you. Uh, There are those who want you and there are those who don't want you. Uh, And those who are for another candidate are going to set up roadblocks and barriers uh, to keep your message from getting out, keep you from getting uh, to certain places, to certain key leaders, uh, uh, to influencers and so forth and so on. So the challenge is how do I get my message beyond the traditional mode? And one of those ways was, of course, the videos uh, that played in delegates' hotel rooms on a 24-hour basis. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, So you won. And, I mean, you were also campaigning as the first woman who would become bishop, and you succeeded. Well, let me, let me, let me, as they say, let me say this to that. Okay. I campaigned on a platform that said I was, I have experience, I'm qualified, I have the skills, I have a track record. Uh, Take a look at what I've done and where I've been as an indication of what I can do and where I can take you know, take the church to the next level, mm-hmm. uh, that the visions and ministries that God has given us uh, that have been enacted through 
throughout our pastoral career are not just for one congregation and for one community. These are things that can be replicated all over the connection uh, to be a help and a blessing uh, uh, and a blessing to others. And so um, that's the campaign that I ran on. Okay. Okay. And you now, of course, yeah, they, go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, of course, there hadn't been a woman who was elected, and there was a move within our church, a move within our church. Uh, the lay organization voted, and so forth and so on, that they, we must elect a woman. Uh, you know, in 2000, and they had a resolution. Hmm. Mm. You know, so if, if you know the train is going that way, okay. <laughs> you know, the train is going that way. But my campaign was on my track record, my experience, and I told people, "Don't elect me because I'm a woman. Okay. Elect me because I'm qualified to do the job. Elect me uh, if you want me to be your bishop, because you know one day I just might be. So you know, let's not just do this for uh, for cutified fanfare yeah. uh, novelty." You know, I, I, you know, I haven't served all my life, haven't worked all my life to be a novelty, to be a token, anything, uh, you know, just to dress up the stage, you know, <laughs> okay. to be the feminine presence and all of this kind of thing. Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, we have we have served. We have worked. We have a track record. We've got experience. Uh, and so, you know, the church pulled together uh, people in the church pulled together a resolution that says we're going to elect a woman. Uh, and they tried to get the resolution to pass the general conference. And it didn't. Uh, and then everybody said, oh, well, everything is lost because there were two of us in the campaign. All is lost. We're not going to elect a woman. And I sat there and looked at the tally. Uh, it was going to take eight, 800 to 900 delegate votes to elect uh, a bishop, uh, to elect anyone a bishop uh, in, in that particular election. And 600 people had voted for the resolution. Okay. That means all I had to do was convince those 600 who voted uh, to have a woman uh, to vote for me? Okay, and then pick up three hundred somewhere. Those swing voters. It sounds easy math, but that <laughs> no. wasn't. It wasn't. It was a hard thing to do. Uh, but uh, um, that um, to be elected, and you know, praise God, I was elected on the second ballot. Okay, and it seems to me that you had a pretty challenging or at least stretching adventure your first appointment as bishop you went to serve as the chief pastor of the 18th episcopal district in southeast africa and so you were in lesotho and swaziland botswana mozambique um how did i haven't seen you write much about that or you know i really really spent a lot of time um steeping myself in what I could find out there and your sermons. And, and and there's not a lot. And it sounds to me like I, th- I think you just immersed yourself in being and doing. Um, but tell me how that time in Africa, um, you know, continued to evolve and shape, <clears throat> sorry, evolve and shape your theology and your understandings of ministry and leadership. Well, Africa is um, and was and is a great place to do ministry. Uh, you know, if you're called to serve and you're called to do ministry, Africa is is just a great place to do it because there are so many needs, yeah. and uh, it, it's not difficult uh, to convince people. Well, you know, we have a problem here. Yes, we have a problem. Now let us all come together and see how we're going to solve the problem. They're going to say, "Yes, let's go," mm-hmm. which is different. You know, when you're in the United States and you say. Mm, have you noticed we're, you know, the the neighborhood is decaying and we really ought to do something about it? And they'd say, well, 
mm, we'll go home to the suburbs and we'll think about it. We'll come back, and when we have official board, we'll discuss it. Uh, but um, you know, you're in Africa, and uh, there was uh, the HIV/AIDS pandemic, and you have in the in that southern region, you had seven thousand people dying every week, and uh, church life is interrupted because uh, pastors and people have um, have to pull together resources to bury people. And you had children who were left by the roadside or uh, who were left on the steps of hospitals that are already overburdened. Hmm. And you have 10-year-olds raising their three and five and six-year-old siblings because their parents are in various stages of of death and dying. Uh, When you say, uh, we need to do something about this, and the people says, yes, you know, we need to do something about this. Uh, And can you help us do something uh, about this? And so uh, it's um, there are many needs, uh, and it's a great place to do ministry, and we praise God we were able to do some things. But Africa is also a place that will break your heart. Uh, I've seen poverty in the United States. I've seen what poor is. Uh, I know what it is. I've seen hunger here. I've seen homeless here. But you have never seen poverty uh, as as it is in Africa. It will break your heart. It'll make you cry. Uh, and perhaps you haven't seen a lot because I'm not ready to write about it yet. Okay. Did that put you more in touch with the prophetic tradition of um, of the African-American church in particular? Um, I mean, African Methodist. Yes. Well, yeah, or but mm-hmm. even, even I think African American theology, in in general, in the United States has, it's in the Bible, okay. But I mean, in terms of churches that have retained that at their core, I think Af- that's more true of African American theology in the United States, perhaps. Um, did it did it awaken that in you, or deepen that in you? Or? I think it. Um, I, I couldn't say it awakened in me because I, I felt that I've been I've been at it all along mm-hmm. uh, in the prophetic social gospel tradition uh, all along, uh, and so it's a continuum. It says, "Yeah, you're right on course. <laughs> you are, you know, you're right in line. Uh, you are, you know, stepping in uh, the right direction uh, in your in your preaching." in your theology, in your approach to ministry. So, you know, I do want to ask you about um, some of the issues that were raised in our culture, but I think not anywhere near resolved um, around uh, the person of Jeremiah Wright in the the context of Barack Obama's presidential campaign. And I know that you have actually a personal, a long relationship with Trinity United Church of Christ and with Reverend Wright. Um, and I don't want to talk so much, you know, about him, but about here's what you know. One question I'd like to ask you is just how you experienced that uh, that conflict as it as it emerged in media, and and also, and maybe this prophetic tradition is is one thing. You know, what you longed for people to have a better grasp of to be able to put any of that into context. You know, what was what people really didn't understand which muddied their, anybody's ability to analyze what that meant or what was at stake. I've kind of asked you a bunch of questions there, but we know wherever you'd yeah. like to weigh in. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, first one was, um, how was the experience? It was painful. Mm-hmm. It was very, very painful uh, to watch and hear and listen 
the negative firestorm that came at the end of a successful pastoral mm-hmm. ministry. Uh, very painful. And um, uh, a lot of it was only because uh, Senator Obama uh, was a member of that congregation. If it was somebody else, anybody else, um, I don't believe that kind of attention and that kind of response would have come uh, in his direction. Secondly, I don't think people understand black theology. Um, uh, They need to read Cone's books and all the others. (laughs) That, um, and I think Cone did an excellent job uh, in you know in interviews and others in in sharing James Cone, right? James Mm Cone, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, About uh, theology, black theology, and the reason why I said you know uh, it is the lens. In other words, uh, theology is the system through which you evaluate and interpret. Uh, scripture or ministry and all of that. And then um, there is a a thought of universal theology. In other words, uh, the universal human experience. But uh, for many African-Americans and for women, there is, it is not, they are not a part of that universal experience. And so the starting point for your interpretation, the starting point for uh, building your theology comes out of the African-American experience, just as womanist theology uh, begins with the woman uh, experience uh, as the starting point uh, of of building the lens through which you you interpret. So I think a lot of people don't understand it, and uh, there are some people who grabbed it and ran with it in a direction that sort of startled everybody. And there were pastors and preachers who were preaching the same thing (laughs) and, you know, the same dialogue. I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton's pastor said the same thing, but nobody railed him and raked him over the coals. And uh, preacher after preacher and bishop after bishop uh, through the years had had preached similar things, (laughs) uh, but nobody... Uh, rake them over the coals, and of course, the thing that was on YouTube that I guess that started the whole that started the whole ball ro- rolling was not what he was saying. He was quoting someone else right. well, who was not African American. Right. What? Well, and what? I'm just trying to cast my mind back. It was about. It was a. It was a critique of of American. It, it was. It was linking. The events of September 11th, in a broad historical perspective, right, with American actions in the rest of the world, it was sure. right. It was making connections between right. and events and moral culpability, right? And it wasn't his right. thought. Um, it wasn't his thought. He, he was, was expounding on it. Mm-hmm. What someone else was, who who someone else said from another ethnic uh, ethnic position. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was in Africa for 9-11. And I never feared for my life as an American anywhere in the world except for during that season. Being Serving in Africa for those four years, I was able to view the United States through the eyes of someone else other than American media. I found um, the, the BBC... Uh, the European news, uh, the Chinese news, Al Jazeera, 
um, you know, the all the other countries, Italian news service, French news service, Spanish news service, you know, able to hear what they said about my country before 9-11 and after 9-11. And in fact, I found out more things about my country that was going on in my country from them than I did from CNN World. Hmm. And I'm going like, wow, is this going on? You get on the phone. Hi, how are you? You know, um, I just heard this. And is this really true? Yeah. Well, then how come it's not on here, 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 here? Hmm. And, you know, being having been a part of broadcasting, you know, you know, you got friends in broadcasting. Like, oh, well, how come you guys aren't on this story? Wow, I just heard it over here, the Chinese news service. And how come, you know, I'm looking here and I'm calling folk back at home. I'm emailing and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And they're not covering this story. How come? You have a totally different picture of your home when you see it through other eyes. Uh, and then watching other news services being more objective to the issues. Mm-hmm. And then when you come home, and you you know you get back to the United States, you're home with family and friends, and da 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 da, and you're watching the media, you're watching American media, you know you know covering the same issues and the same story. I was going, wow, this is very subjective. <laughs> okay, I and said, so, this is not objective at all. This is very subjective, <laughs> and it's very close to entertaining me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so on the one hand, you know, it's like let us entertain you, and then on the other hand, this is what you have to be afraid of today. Right, and okay, so. Prophetic preaching is the opposite of entertaining. Ah, uh, you're not gonna let me talk about this, are you? Uh, no, no, I am. I am. But I, what, what I want to, what? Okay, I know. I, I think if you want to come back, if, if if you think I'm derailing, you don't let me. But what I was gonna say is, what felt inflammatory, and I think shocking, jarring, also just because it was so different from what you're talking about when people heard. Thing, you know, p- sections of Jeremiah Wright's sermons on YouTube and really things taken out of context. Um, it was that combination of um, of telling the truth in a new, of seeing things in a different way, um, but as you say, a way that many preachers have preached and, uh, and not, not just, not just uh, in the black church, um, but also the anger and the righteous indignation righteous indignation that is part of the prophetic tradition. And and it was that passion attached to the idea that maybe America had had was morally culpable in the in the large sweep of history and maybe there was some connection between that and bad things that were happening to us now. Um that that struck an a really emotional nerve in the American psyche of something being um almost anti-american right i mean I, I i so what did you want people to understand about that kind of preaching and that kind of theology um about the integrity of that well i, I think um um i, I have to come back i, yeah, I have okay, to come back okay. I, you know I, i've got to come back and say that from any pulpit in America, whether the preacher is black, white, Asian, yellow, blue, pink, or green, whatever color, you will hear some strain somewhere, some strain of of, of criticism uh, or opinion uh, about America. 
You will hear it. I hear it when I listen. Uh, when I, you know, when I, you know, go through the channels and and I listen and I listen and I listen, uh, you know, and I hear a preacher say, uh, you know, you know, you 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 vote for those uh, who believe in your values. Oh, I say now that's criticism right there, uh, you know, and mm-hmm. or you you switch the channel and you hear the preacher says now, uh, um, you know, we're gonna support our troops, right or wrong. Okay. Here's his opinion here. Uh, you hear a variety of things, not okay. just in the black church. Mm-hmm. You hear a variety of opinions that support a particular political line, a political bent, um, um, you know, a political thing. It's not just in the black church. I'm saying it is in all churches. Okay. It's there. You'll mm-hmm. hear an opinion. You'll hear a criticism, um, period. You'll hear it. Uh, what happens in America is we have an opinion that we can't do anything wrong, that everything we do is right. Hmm? <laughs> we, we as a culture. Mm-hmm. 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 What do you think? Do, what do I think? Yeah. I'm a journalist. You know, I don't have any opinions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but when you write, uh, when you write or when yeah. you broadcast or when you ask questions, mm-hmm. there, there, is a, there, is a, um, there is an opinion base from which the question comes from. Right, right. And so that's, that's where I'm going to jump back uh, to being in Africa during 9-11. Okay. And listening to other people talk about your home, your country, the place that you love, where you live. Uh, and I, and uh, um, trying to reach home and trying to reach family, uh, you know, trying to, you know, trying to find our kids in, in the midst of all of this. When you're, you know, when you finally get to the television and, and they're saying that there's a second plane coming and it's, it's coming to, it's going to, uh, you know, there's another plane going to uh, Washington and so forth and so on. You're trying to reach your kids. My kids were uh, in college and, you know, I'm, I'm calling and they're saying to me, uh, we're watching uh, the smoke in, uh, from the Pentagon. And I'm saying, get out of there. Uh, the school is closed. Yeah, that means you go home, you know, and you get in the car. I can't leave my I can't leave my classmates from California and Oregon because they don't have a place to go. Pile everybody in the car, go home. Don't matter, don't matter how many kids are there. Just get there. Just get home. Worried about where your husband is, who who was uh, a few blocks away from the White House. Uh, where is he? Is he alive? Is he fine? Then you get a call from the U.S. ambassador that says, where are you? And I said, well, um, I'm right here right now. And, well, where are you going? Where are you going to go the next day? We need to know where you're going, the name of the congregations you are visiting. We need to know the name of your driver, where you're going. We're going to make sure we have your, you know, cell number. And I said, why? And the response was, I want to assure you that your government is able to protect you. Right. And I'm saying, like, um, look at here. Uh, When the helicopter takes off from... um, the um, from the uh, roof of the embassy, you make two calls. One to your wife. The second one's to me. <laughs> you know, no. If y'all got to go, and you have to understand, an American in a, a, a foreign country where you have you know equal basis between Christians and and uh, and Muslims, mm-hmm. uh, you're not quite sure you know about your life. And then the very next day, sitting down with the king of the of a country where I live. Uh, you know, in the capital city, dialoguing with them, uh, uh, who turns around uh, and says, uh, um, it seems like y'all having a problem managing your situations. (laughs) But you are sending people to my country. This is what the king says. You're sending people to my country 
to teach us about democracy, and your democracy is not working where you live. And I'm going like, um, no, no, no. Let me let me tell you a little bit about American history and, and about my home and where I live. And this king, who was educated in Oxford, mm. you know, educated in Oxford with an Oxford degree in England, comes to tell me about how my country's democracy is not working. Whew. Wow. Who reminds me that they were sending people to Africa to teach them how to set up a democracy government. He said at a time when you couldn't figure out who was president of the United States. Okay. This is during the 2000 election. All right. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand what Through you're saying. All and, of that. Yeah. Yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold okay, on. Okay, hold okay, on, okay. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> you know, when you can't figure out who the president of the United States is, you know, and and and, and it was a daily dialogue with us. I, do you have a president yet? You have a president yet? So my response to him was, I said, when when you can't elect your prime minister and you fall out, when y'all fall out and you can't elect your leadership, you go to war. You blow up the country. Mm-hmm. When we have an issue, we go to the Supreme Court. There's still a loss of life and money on both sides. There's still bloodshedding. One is in a white-collar mode in the Supreme Court, and the other is through tanks and guns and bombs, Okay, which is the preferred way. So it's Take in- a deep breath. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> and I want to circle this back to, I mean, <laughs> so here, here's the thing. When Americans hear those kinds of opinions in the pulpit that you mentioned before, the other kind of opinion, um, okay. that we support our troops, right or wrong, right. or you vote for, <clears throat> or, t- you know, from the pulpit telling people to vote for the people who support your values. Right. That sounds patriotic. And now what I hear you doing is being patriotic in a very sophisticated and complex way. And I think you're still saying that in the pulpit, it's appropriate to point out um, that everything is not perfect with American democracy. I mean, you know, so take what you just said to me and tell me how that, how that, what is the place for that kind of analysis in the pulpit and in preaching and how that comes together with this prophetic tradition of, of a Vashti McKenzie, of a Jeremiah Wright? Well, now I think you know you're, the prophetic tradition is is one thing. Uh, if you're talking about social criticism and whether social criticism has a social criticism um, has a place in the preaching tradition, yes. Uh, does political criticism? I think that's what you're asking now. Uh, whether political criticism belongs in the pulpit, I think you'll find uh, a lot of opinion that says no. We preach Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the grave. Uh, you know that is our mandate. That is the gospel ministry. Uh, but to be silent about what's happening in your neighborhood. Do you understand what I'm mm-hmm, saying? Mm-hmm. To be silent about what happened uh, in your neighborhood, is, is, is that sin? So for me, if, if I'm in my neighborhood, I'm in my, let's say I'm back in Baltimore, I'm at Payne Memorial, I'm the pastor. And I have, I have 5,000 people who um, cannot feed their families. And I look up and I've got another 5,000 coming uh, because they're being dropped out of a, of, of a system. 
then I'm supposed to be silent and not pick up the phone and call my council representative or my mayor and say, uh, this is what's happening in my neighborhood. Uh, what what can we do together to fix this? Okay. Uh, because in a minute, it's getting ready to be out of hand. Okay. And they tell me, well, we made these decisions months ago and years ago. And I said, but you made these decisions, uh, and you expect me to feed these people uh, and take care of them and be a part of the safety net system. That means now you're impacting my budget, my ties and offerings that are going to go for my people to help fix this problem. Uh, that you created and didn't bother to consult me. Mm-hmm. So you want me to shift my budget to be a part of the safety net because we're going to do that anyway. You know, we're going to demonstrate the love of God in a very tangible way. But I'm supposed to do that silently and not ask questions to see how we can make sure this doesn't happen again. Okay. Okay. I want to, um, I felt like one issue that was raised but really not addressed in that whole controversy around Jeremiah Wright was the complicated and nuanced relationship we all have with our spiritual leaders or our communities of worship. Um, you know, there was kind of like, well, let's find something alarming uh, that this man's pastor said and equate it with uh, with this man himself. And, right. and I, you know, and it's never that simple. It's not even, even the way we deal with our sacred text is, uh, is complex. I just wonder if you had thoughts about that, wisdom about that. I think the aftermath is that there are going to be fewer politicians in church. Mm. <laughs> wow, that's a pretty stark statement. Yeah. Think about it. Where is Senator Bar- uh, Barack Obama going to worship now? Mm-hmm. Where? Right. Publicly. Is he going to go to worship? Mm-hmm. And can you imagine any congregation that he walks near, that that pastor is going to have fear and trembling, and, oh, my God, they're going to come after me now? Right, right. That I'm going to be cyber lynched because this man and family worships in my congregation. Okay. Where where is any other politician who has aspirations down the line, um, you know, is going to continue to worship where they worship and say, well, let me see, let me, you know, let pastor, let me tell you, let, let, let's do this. Pastor, let me review every sermon you've preached right. over the well, last Well, and it years. is happening now with all the candidates, isn't it? It's happening with Sarah Palin's Absolutely. churches. It's happening with John McCain's churches. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, not so much. Not so much John McCain. I think he got a pass on that one. <laughs> I think his pastor got a pass. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they crucified, they crucified uh, Dr. Wright uh, and uh, simply because of, 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 of that uh, and the fact that Senator Barama was a member of his congregation. I think you're going to have less and less people, uh, politicians who have aspirations, uh, who are going to um, be in the pews. Now, I know that... Um Again, you know, as you've been describing, there's a broad spectrum of theology, even if you're talking about, you know, the black church or the prophetic tradition. Those are also spectrums that people are on. And and um, there were a range of, <clears throat> sorry, a range of opinions about specific things that uh, Jeremiah Wright said. I don't know, for example, the, some of the stuff he said about, about AIDS. Um, 
Oh, where was I going with that question? Um, but my my point also is, so and I and I so. But even having said that, you know, you're saying that he was crucified, and I mean, do you is that a is that a sense that many people have, even people who might not have agreed with every, you know, every point, um, the way every statement was made, the statements that were that were publicized. Um, as I said in the beginning, it was very painful. Yeah. It was very painful for those of us who know him and his family, and that kind of, and uh, Trinity. Very painful, I'm sure, for Senator Obama, uh, and very painful for the Black Church as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, for many things were taken out of context. It was blasted all over YouTube and every other, and, you know, in every in every other place where, uh, under ordinary circumstances, no one would have paid attention outside of those who are, are, you know, related to or who attend or, or so forth. It was just like, uh, it was just like a, a lightning rod, you know, mm-hmm. straight through, uh, straight through the community, whether one agreed uh, or didn't agree. It right. was just a very painful lightning rod, um, you know, for the church, mm-hmm. for the church individually and for the church as a whole. Okay. And I, I want to ask you a similar question to the one I asked at the beginning of this, talking about Jeremiah Wright. I, I just wonder, there was a point in the primary campaign, um, and this is when I started thinking about wanting to interview you, uh, where there were suddenly, it was like it, the, the notion of being a woman leader, being an African-American leader, somehow there was a competition between the two in a sense. Well, which, you know, which would be best? <laughs> And I started thinking about Vashti McKenzie, who is an African-American woman leader, and how you hold all those qualities together in yourself. And I I just want to ask you also how you experienced some of the dynamics that were raised about gender and about race um, in that primary period, how you personally took that in, what disturbed you, what did you feel we weren't really addressing head on? well, I still feel that um, there is still more emphasis on whether one is black or whether one is female, and that our focus should be upon the issue, the program, the platform, uh, the uh, the track record, and then again, um, you know, the the things that need to be done to look ahead. I mean, we've got we have issues that need to be dealt with, and they need to be dealt with effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only for our future, but for our children's future. Um, you know, we've got domestic issues that are just completely out of hand. Uh, you know, today in where we are uh, in uh, between Tennessee and Georgia, uh, people are on a great hunt for gasoline. It's just none to be had. Mm. Uh, it's sort of like a foretaste of what can happen and, and could happen uh, if our, you know, our our economics has gone down the tubes anyway, but I mean, you know, if it gets worse than worse than it is for for people, uh, we have a, a domestic policy that uh, is kind of ragged here, and we already know what's happening on Wall Street stock market. Yeah. Uh, the our nation, our our government is is bailing out uh, the financial system here, private financial 
organizations to uh, keep it from getting worse. Uh, but then you wonder who's going to bail out the American government. Uh, you begin to wonder, you know, is America for sale? And um, other countries are coming with their checkbooks to buy what we have allowed to fall apart. So uh, these are very, uh, these are very uh, tenuous times uh, in our country, and we're all hoping for the best and the better. So we should not be focusing on whether one is a female uh, or whether one is African-American. Let's focus on what they say, what they say they can do, uh, what the policy can be, mm-hmm. uh, how can they perform. That should be the focus. Uh, you know, but all across the country. Well, we're not going to vote for Senator Obama because we just don't want a black man in the White House. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, yeah. Well, we're going to we're going to vote for McCain because we need to have a woman in the White House. Yeah. Right. Okay. Let's vote for the person who we believe is qualified and is ready, uh, ready to lead the country, and let's put them in place, <laughs> and let's put the gender and the race issue aside. But we get hung up on it every time we turn the corner over and over and over again. And I live for the day. I live for the day. I said it in, in my books, and, you know, you sound like you've been reading them. Yeah. You know, I said, it, you know uh, I said over and over again, I live for the day when my gender and my race means nothing, means nothing about whether I'm qualified to do a job or perform a task uh, that my gifts, my skills, my character, my mental astuteness, these things is what gets me in the door. Not whether I'm female or not whether I'm African-American, not whether I'm from the Asian uh, Pacific Rim, not whether I'm Hispanic or Latino, but my gifts, my skills, my graces, these things qualify me uh, to do the job. Period. You often write about you know leaders who happen to be women, and I, I, right. I mean I can imagine you also leaders who happen to be African American or happen right. to be Latino. Mm-hmm. You know when the when the ship is sinking, you know, and you're going down for the third time. Okay, <laughs> uh, you know you're not gonna you know somebody somebody's getting ready to cast a net to say, you know, I can pull this ship out of the water and all of you will live. Are you going to stand there and take time and say, are you African-American? <laughs> you know, what's your heritage? What's your parentage? Right. You just want to get you want to get saved. You want to you want to live. You want to get out of the, the rough waters here. Mm-hmm. You don't want to drown. You're not going to stop and ask for a resume. Right. And and you also have a very developed theology around this. I mean, one of your books um, centers around the Samaritan woman at the well. And, you know, here's one of the one of the ways you talk about that. You, you write, the first lesson from the well is that the petty distinctions of race and gender used to divide kingdom and kingdoms and communities are not valid in the eyes of God. Jesus yes. becomes a catalyst for change, upsetting our set of beliefs, attitudes, assumptions and expectations. The Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman needed water to survive. But Jesus startled her by affirming her humanity. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yay. Let's put it on a T-shirt. Let's put it on a billboard. You know, talk a little bit for people who don't aren't familiar with that story. Why for you this this Samaritan woman at the well is such a compelling figure in this context of race and gender? Well, for the for the first time, you know, of course, it's in the the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, this uh, woman who comes to an outside well, 
um, has an encounter with Jesus that changes her life. Uh, and at the end of the story, she drops her water pots. Uh, you know, she came to get water. At the end, she dropped her water pots and went back to the city and um, announced, come see a man who's told me everything about myself. It's a simple story, uh, and most people approach it as a simple story. To me, it is a multi-layered, uh, a multi-layered uh, uh, experience, uh, an occasion uh, that sets a pattern of transformation uh, that happens, uh, that can happen for all of us, uh, a pattern and a moment of transformation. Here you find uh, Jesus meeting in foreign territory. He's in hostile territory. Okay. He's, he's, he is in a place where if he is found uh, by people who are not of his ilk, uh, he will put himself in harm's way. He will, can be physically attacked and forcibly removed from the area because the Jews and the Samaritans didn't kind of like each other, didn't quite get along. They had similarities, but there was divisions along the way. So here you have a woman who is of Samaria, uh, who is outside of her neighborhood. Uh, there was a city well that she could have gone to, but she went at the wrong time of the day and the wrong hour, which already announces that uh, something is amiss in her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has an encounter with Jesus who begins to dialogue uh, with her about what she knows. Uh, he doesn't tell her to come to Sunday school or sits down and does a Bible study or exegetes a text. <laughs> uh, what he does is he begins with where she is and what she knows, and that's water. And he begins to lead her from a very basic understanding of physical water uh, by explaining a very complicated theological concept of living water. And so in this encounter is the demonstration of the beloved community. Uh, this is a demonstration of those who are you know, absolutely on the outside, uh, got character issues here, has a past that is just, you know, <laughs> yeah. off off the um, off the radar screen as, 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 you know, the appropriate radar screen. I mean, just way off. Uh, and Jesus talks with her uh, and then leads her uh, to a transformation to a woman who doesn't know what's going on to a woman who does know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she sees herself reflected in the eyes of Jesus uh, as who she really is. Uh, her history has defined who she is. Her gender has defined who she is and her role in her community. Her culture has defined her as being secluded and silent. Uh, her religion has defined her. Uh, she's a person without a soul. Uh, and and so, um, and her personal situation has defined her. She's on this relationship merry-go-round uh, here, this relationship roulette. Uh, and so these things, the, all of these things have defined who she is. But for that one shining moment, she saw who, who she really was reflected in the eyes of God. Uh, and then at that moment, Jesus reveals to her his messiahship, not to the disciples, not to the religious leaders of the temple. She was the first one uh, in John's gospel to receive this revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we take a look at this pattern of transformation, then what I want to do, I want to see myself reflected in the eyes of God. I know what my history and my heritage tells about me. I know what my uh, social uh, standing and status in this country tells 
me uh, who I am. But I want to see myself reflected in the eyes of God. And when I see myself reflected in the eyes of God, then doors open. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's neither uh, Greek nor Jew, bond nor free, uh, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. When I see myself uh, reflected uh, in the eyes of Christ, I know that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Uh, That as I humble myself before the Lord, the Lord will lift me up. So when I see myself, I see myself, I see myself reflected in the eyes of God that I'm a child of God. I am not superior. I am not inferior. I am a child of God. Mm. Okay. I think I just should say amen here and yeah. <laughs> not ask another erudite question. <laughs> and we can open the doors of the church. <laughs> <laughs> On public radio. Listen, I'm going to pause for a minute and see if there are questions from my colleagues behind the glass. And then I'm just going to ask you a few more questions and let you go. You've given me a lot of time. and This is really wonderful. So I'm going to be quiet for a minute in my headphones while I listen to them. Sure. Yeah, she did that. She didn't give the name of this book. Uh-huh. Oh, Journey to the Well. Oh, okay. She talked about it, but nobody knows the name of it. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, I just want to get a little more understanding. When you when you said earlier on, um, and I think we kind of passed over this uh, just because we ended up talking about some of the media conflict and the p- political conflict. We talked about that Jeremiah Wright, and uh, you said you said people couldn't understand a lot of that because they don't understand black theology. Um, would would you want to say a little bit more about what what you mean by that? What what is not perhaps not even possible for outsiders to understand? Well, I, I don't. I'm not saying that I don't think it is impossible for outsiders to understand. Uh, I think that um, if you want to know what it is, then go read about it. Uh, and, you know, go read God of the Oppressed by ja, uh, by James Cohen. Go, go mm-hmm. read about it first before uh, you take something out of context and, and criticize it. And I think it's time for us to let it go. It's time to let this go. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's like a bone. We keep gnawing on it and we keep gnawing on it and keep gnawing on it. It's just you mean the it's Jeremiah time to Wright let it go. Thing? Yeah. yeah. I okay. mean, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's just time, um, you know, it's just time to let it go. Okay. Um, I'm gonna wanna, you talk a lot in your books about um, it, it's important for you for people to think uh, for themselves about what are societal defining moments for them. And I'd just love to know what your perspective is, you know, in these years we're in now. Because um, I have a feeling you may not give the obvious answers. You know, what are the defi- societal defining moments that you see, that you're experiencing, that we... They're going to shape us um, as we move forward, well beyond you know this year, this this presidential election, and the crises of today. 
I think that um, you're talking, you're referring to when I talk about defining moments, things that happen are happening in the world, uh, so or, that yeah. things are are different after that moment happens. Mm-hmm. They have impact uh, upon your life, so that how you were living prior to it. Um, was changed by that moment so that you live differently after that. Like for one generation, World War II was a defining moment. Uh, For many, uh, the Vietnam War was a defining moment. Uh, Certainly for me, uh, the the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a defining moment for me. Um, And I think in, in this era, this election, Whoever wins, it's going to be a defining moment. Mm. Uh, I believe that because there's so many young people, hooray, 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 (laughs) who are uh, waking up, who have been content to let other people make decisions for them, uh, who are waking up and who are working and volunteering and getting excited. uh, And there's going to be one group that's disappointed and my fear is that they would just throw up their hands and walk away. Yeah. Uh, and that they're unable uh, to handle it. And I, I would hate for that to happen. I would hope that whichever side, whatever it is, uh, that they would use that disappointment to continue uh, to participate and to work and to volunteer uh, and, of course, to vote uh, and to vote. Uh, I think for... Um, Many, many, many families, uh, the conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan is going to be a defining moment. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, my husband and I were flying, and there were a lot of troops on the on the plane. Uh, and what they do is they allow their families to come down to the gate so that you can, you know, hug and hold for the last yeah. possible moment. Uh, and, you know, sitting next to a soldier... Uh, on his way to Afghanistan, and I just looked at him and I said, "Please come back, <laughs> just just come back, just please come back." Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, and he looks at me, and I'm looking at him. And we know exactly what we're talking about, uh, but his life—that will be a defining moment for his life. Now, watching him hug his wife and his kids. Uh, it's a defining moment for those children, especially if something happens. Right. Uh, and so uh, conflict um, on the other side of the world is going to be uh, a defining moment for many people. Uh, I think uh, for uh, our young people who are coming along, uh, a defining moments are going to be the brick walls that they're hit, that they're going to hit mm-hmm. and are not prepared to handle it. What about... Um Hurricane Katrina in the aftermath of that, you know, when that was unfolding, I felt like that was a defining moment. I felt like Americans, Mm. we saw something about ourselves because what we saw in New Orleans was was not just about New Orleans. It was about American urban areas and somehow about how disconnected we've become from each other. But I, you know, as, as, as that has receded into the past, I... I can't tell that um, that that stuck, that moment of whatever we learned in Katrina. What's your perspective on that? Racism is alive and well and living in New Orleans. Uh, or, you know, racism is alive and well and living in uh, America. Yes, Katrina, it, you know, it's a defining moment. Uh, we watched with horror and, you know, worked as hard as we could to try to 
uh, alleviate as much pain as we can. Eleven tractor trailers left my district and went to uh, Mississippi and Louisiana filled with mm. um, clothes and water and all those kinds of things uh, from from our district, from our two states. And so we did what we uh, could. Uh, one of the things, the whole issue just uh, for me was painful. It was traumatic. It was absolutely like I was living there. I grew up in hurricane territory. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I grew up in Baltimore. Hurricanes, you know, Hurricane Anna, Camille, they all came up the, came right up uh, the um, Chesapeake Bay. And so I know what it's like. I know what it felt like. And to watch, to watch uh, the uh, the dehumanizing process of of Hurricane uh, Katrina was just absolutely painful. Uh, And so um, not only did we respond, we were upset uh, about some of the coverage uh, that happened. Yes, we were upset that, you know, the things, you know, the FEMA things and things that were supposed to be in mm-hmm. place uh, were not there and, and that people were falling between the cracks and people were dying and, um, you know, the deplorable situation that was uh, at the Superdome and people were left stranded on bridges and in their homes and all of that. And the and the safety net that was supposed to be there, the responders who were supposed to be there, uh, it just did not happen right away. Uh, and then the structure, you're talking about the administration, yeah. uh, the structure of the process uh, was flawed so that you had people who, uh, who came to help uh, couldn't help, uh, who just sat and helped, you know. Uh, you know, I was in Memphis and saw, tr- you know, tractor trucks loaded with ice, uh, supposed to be going down south and say, why aren't you going? Hmm. And their response is, we're waiting for them to tell us where to go. So hmm. you had all of this, it's similar that's happening to Ike when the mayor of Houston yeah. says, you know, we have all these people in line for food on this side of town, and you have all this food that's in a parking lot over here. Something is the matter with the uh, the, the structure, how it's set up, and how do people respond. So um, as a media child as I am, uh, I you know, we put a film crew, sent a film crew two weeks after Katrina, hmm down to capture the truth. Uh, we called, uh, it's called, it's a 30-minute program. It's called Survivor Stories. Be happy to share it with you. Mm. Uh, we wanted to be able to show the response of the African-American church community to what was happening in Katrina. Because that wasn't we a story watched, that was being told? Is that, huh? that was not I'm a sorry. story that was being told. That was not a story being told. And so, you know, we're, you know, we're watching and, and, you know, we knew the churches. We knew what they were doing. We knew what the people were doing on the ground. But you didn't see it on the day program, mm-hmm. didn't see it on an early mm-hmm. show, didn't see it on CNN. And we're going like, wow, what, wait a minute. What it looked like, it looked like our own community was not responding to help our community. Okay. It, it looked like uh, that we abandoned we abandoned our own community, and that's not what was happening. Okay. Uh, and um, we wanted to show that, yes, we were on the ground, and we were there, and our churches were open, and the people were sleeping in the sanctuary and the food, and we were sending food and clothes, and we were responding to the community. But what I wanted to be sure is that the stories of the people did not get lost. Okay. Here are people who went through a, a, a hurricane hell. They went through something that you would not want your worst enemy to go through. And they survived. And so I wanted to find out, how were you able to survive? 
How were you able to do that? Mm. What was your anchor? What helped you to hold on? And so we had stories, we, you know, story of a of a man, um, you know, and they're, you know, stuck in the house, and the water is now up to the second floor, and uh, how he um, took one family member at a time and took them underwater, carried them on his back up the street uh, to a place where he could plant them uh, on the roof of another place so that they'd be safe. Nine family members. Hmm. Uh, you know, a mother who had to do the same thing hmm. with each of her children, having had three children. And, let you know, can you imagine, hmm. um, you know, telling uh, the five-year-old, you stay here, mommy be back? <laughs> no, I can't. You know, yeah. and mommy takes the child out. out and out. We didn't want these stories to be lost because we felt somewhere along the line, 20 years from now, someone's going to come along and says, oh, Katrina wasn't that bad. <laughs> okay. This didn't really happen. All right. And we wanted to preserve these stories and show how the African-American community responded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were able to do that. You know, finally, I want to ask, um, and again, thinking about some of these great challenges we have ahead of us, um, not just this election, but uh, the challenges that are going to be with us very much the day after the election as well for whoever is elected president. You have, you've learned a lot about leadership in your years. You've, you've written about leadership. You've kind of deconstructed what is involved. You've talked about how our ideas of leadership have evolved. And I just wonder what kind of wisdom you have to offer as as you help all of us think about what leadership means in this world we're inhabiting now and this world we're moving into. Things are changing so rapidly that leaders are having to learn on their feet and the learning curve is very short. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I believe that it's not just, it's not just the skill or the experience of the leader that's going to be the telling mark. It's going to be the character and it's going to be what the leader believes in. Uh, the belief, the value base, it's what's going to count later on. And I think the belief and the value base is going to be the best barometer, um, uh, the best barometer on how they're going to come out uh, at the other end. I believe that uh, there are leaders who are wrestling, who are having a great wrestling match with what the world is going to become. Our world is, is very small now. And it's going to be a very diverse world. And we're going to have to live in uh, a world community of different races, different histories and heritage, and different religions. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to learn how to live together. Because if we don't, we're going to start to wipe each other off the face of the earth. Uh, And I sure would hate that to happen. I I would hate to have to hand to my children and to my children's children a a world that is turned on each other. Uh, and so as a leader, uh, you have to get over it. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. you know, if you have a particular phobia against a particular history, it's time to get over this because we're going to live in this world together. Uh, if you have a particular phobia uh, where you cannot stand in the room of persons from a variety of religions, you need to get over it mm-hmm. now. Uh, and and very quickly. And I think, you um, know, there are people and, and there are reasons for people to believe this, that, that it, religion precisely gets in the way of people being embracing towards different others. And I, I wonder what your understanding of God, your theology, teaches you about leadership for this this world we inhabit now. 
we can um, learn about uh, our, certainly uh, the leadership process uh, through many of the biblical, you know, through the biblical characters uh, that uh, have been left for us to examine. Um, but uh, for me, uh, the transformational style, leadership style of Jesus is, is just an absolute wonderful role model uh, who uh, is able to bring people from the, fri- uh, from the fringes of community and empower them, uh, who looks beyond history and culture and society uh, and brings people together and helps them to find a common ground. Uh, and isn't that what uh, isn't that a wonderful thing for faith to do, faith leaders to do? Hmm. Uh, I think that we agree on more things than we disagree, ex- except for we disagree so hard about stuff we disagree about. Right. We overlook the things that we do uh, that we do uh, agree about. So I'm all for let's find our common ground. Okay, we agree on this. Good. Now let's begin to build our relationship from there. Okay. Anything else that's on your mind, um, questions or insights, answers, uh, wisdom, right now, at this moment in time, as this election nears? This is a most exciting time to be alive in the world. We are right on the cusp of moving into new directions. Uh, we, are, we are learning, uh, moving from this information, uh, from this industrial age to this information age, which is changing all of our relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, the technology, the Internet is changing how we relate to each other. Uh, and I don't think we have realized the impact uh, upon uh, upon our human relationships, this new technology, which is uh, changing every day, changing every right. day. And I think the church is the last place uh, where we're going to learn how to relate to each other as human beings. <laughs> it's the last place where we learn about relationships, our parenting relationships, our personal relationships, uh, our relationships between God and community and each other. Uh, this is an exciting time to be alive. You mean it's the last place? It's 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 one of the last um, places where that is what we focus on. Is that what you're saying? Or yeah, where we yeah. where it's mm-hmm. taught, mm-hmm. where it's preached, where it's taught, where you learn it, where you in Sunday school. Mm-hmm. We don't do it in school anymore. Yeah, it's intergenerational we too in churches. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. On how we relate to each other. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is an exciting time in this uh, emerging technology and how it relates. It would be interesting to see what happens. Uh, but for me, uh, I remember very vividly um, uh, my dad, and I wrote about it. I, you probably came across the story already. My dad, big guy, 6'4", 200-pound guy, you know, AAU track champion out of the University of Wisconsin, big guy. Uh, you know, uh, your daddies are always a little girl's hero. Uh, and I vividly watched my dad uh, watching uh, the dogs and the hoses leech, uh, released on people who were in the freedom marches down south uh, with tears coming down his eyes. And I was a little girl, and he turned to me and he says, Never let anybody ask you what you did for your people and for your country. And so I never want my children to ask me uh, what did you do? I want them to be able to see it. Hmm. 
And I hope every adult who is living and alive today will be able to do something to improve uh, where we live and who we are so that when you turn around and hand this world to your children, you will not be ashamed. Okay. That's your last word. We have one question about music because we layer the program with music. Um, and uh, you talked about songs that you sang, in, in, that you memorized when you were a little girl in church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What were, do you know or do you remember what some of those songs were? Well, let's see. Blessed Assurance, Jesus oh, is Mine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those, <laughs> yeah. those kinds of songs. Um, uh, the Church is One Foundation, you mm-hmm. know. Um, um, on Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. Yeah. All Other Ground is Sinking Sand. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, It Is Well With My Soul. Yes. When Sea Like a River, you know, that yeah. one. Yeah, okay. It is, you know, the, yeah. It Is Well With oh, My yeah. Soul. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, quick question. Amazing Grace, you know, all oh, those yeah. songs. All those, like okay. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you have any audio of you as a gospel announcer? Do you have any tapes left from that time? I don't know. I'll have to go search for them. You know, that was a that was before the digital age. I know. <laughs> well, we could work with cassette. We could work with reel to reel. Yeah, and you know what we're saying? We can offer you a deal if you can find it on in, in any medium. We can turn it into a CD for you. Oh, okay. Make it worth your time. We'd have to. I would really have to search, and uh, I'm not in a. This is my annual conference season, yeah. so I'm going from region to region to okay. region here, and those tapes would be back in Baltimore. Is there some place uh, we could look for them? Um, are they in? Are they stored somewhere that we might be able to make a connection? You, I don't know. We would have to find it from the radio station. Really, if, is if the radio they, station still there? Yes. What is it? A WYCB in Washington. Okay, we'll try that. Uh, Bishop McKenzie, thank you so much. It has been really an honor and a delight to speak with you. And we'll let you know what's happening with this, and we'll send you a CD, and I, I hope you'll uh, um, like it. All right, and please let us know when it's airing. Yeah, we will. We absolutely will. Okay, great. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you, Dave.